Welcome to Breast Friends Cancer Support Radio. Your hosts are Becky Olson and Sharon Hennepin. Our show is here to help breast cancer patients, survivors, their friends and family with the resources, support, and inspiration they can use right now. Here are your hosts, Sharon and Becky. Welcome to Breast Friends Cancer Support Radio. Uh, my name is Sharon Hennepin. I'm a 23-year breast cancer survivor, certified life coach, and the author of my upcoming book, Thriving Beyond Cancer. And my name is Becky Olson. I'm a three-time, 20-year, almost 21 now, year breast cancer survivor. I'm also a professional speaker and the author of The Hat That Saved My Life. Uh, Sharon and I are also the co-founders of Breast Friends, and we've been doing this for 16 years, which is pretty darn awesome, I think. Absolutely. Um, Yeah. Today, we're going to talk about stupid cancer, and that's not just a description of cancer. That's actually a thing, and so we're going to talk about that with a very special guest today, Matthew Zachary. Matthew is the founder and CEO of Stupid Cancer, so welcome, Matthew. Thanks for coming to our show. Hey guys, it's a real pleasure to be here and congratulations to you both on your survivorship of Stupid. Uh, yeah, yeah, and it is indeed, isn't it? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> boy, oh boy. So we'd love for you to introduce yourself, Matthew, to our audience and kind of tell us your story and then we'll go from there. Yeah, I, I really appreciate the opportunity to, to share my story with your, with your community. It's, it's, just, it's so important to share your story, so I'm, I'm honored. So thanks again. Um, I, I was born and raised in New York City, and I started uh, classical piano training at the age of 11. So I was studying uh, for 10 years, went to undergraduate for music, and got into grad school to study film composition, which is incredibly exciting to, you know, to be that young and know what you want to do when you grow up. Was, was, a, was you know, you don't even realize how much of a privilege that is. No but, kidding. <clears throat> yeah. So right before I began my, my senior year of college, uh, I worked in the city at the World Trade Center, and I started to experience these very weird headaches that I couldn't understand. And, I, you know, when you're young and dumb, you don't think about anything because you're invincible. Didn't go to the doctor. <laughs> you know, went back to school, started that fall in 1995, and immediately noticed that I could no longer arpeggiate. And for the non-music people out there, that just means play music really fast with your fingers. So, okay. Um, and then I thought, well, that's weird. I'll just ignore it because I'm 21 years old. And <laughs> <clears throat> so time went on, and then I'm also a lefty, and I was unable to grip a pen. And I thought, that's weird. I'll just keep going because I'm a 21-year-old. And then I finally had um, a seizure and uh, fainting and slurred speech and dizziness and oh. uh, incorruptible headaches. And they're like, wow, maybe there's really something wrong with me. So I went to the campus physicians, um, and, you know, for what that's worth, never go to your campus physicians for a cancer diagnosis, because I kept getting misdiagnosed week after week after week. Oh, man. And the the, the running gag, which is, you know, truth is stranger than fiction, they gave me Robitussin because they thought I had the flu. Oh, boy. So so my lot in life is to make sure no one gets Robitussin for cancer, first and foremost. (laughs) Not but, that there's anything wrong with Robitussin. No, we just no, want our. We don't want any sponsors of, calling us. No, no, no. Robitussin, not a sponsor. Yes, clearly. <laughs> but you know, but it was only until I got back during winter break that I finally saw my, my general practitioner. I was 21, and he definitely said, "There's something wrong with you. Go get an MRI." 
And on December 29th, 1995, they found a giant mass in my brain. Um, And they didn't know what it was. They just knew that it was something there. And, you know, people ask, well, what did you think? I was actually really happy that it was something and I wasn't crazy. And because everyone's like, well, no, maybe it's all in your head. And that wasn't really supposed to be a joke. But the truth is, it was. (laughs) Wow. That must have been as frightening as can be. I had brain surgery, which is a journey in and of itself. Um, This was 21 years ago, actually last week. So here we are all in the 20-year club, which is an exciting club to be in. (laughs) Exactly. But surgery back then was different than today. They literally ripped your head open, and it was life-threatening. And you know they they don't tell you that, Mm -hmm. so you live, which is a good thing. But Mm -hmm. um, my, you know, my my biggest problem was I couldn't play piano, so I didn't care about anything. But when you take this out of my head, can I play again? And they said probably not. You know, don't tell patients they can't do something. Uh, Yeah. And so Matthew, said, let me let me ask you something yeah, real sure. quick. You just and you may have just said it, and I may have just missed it. But how old were you when when this happened? When your diagnosis hit you? This was at twenty one years old, and during the fall 21. semester of my oh. senior year of college. Yeah. Wow. Well, so that that's yeah. Sorry, Sharon. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say t- to your point. Nothing happened. I mean, you know, nothing should happen to twenty one year olds, right? I right. mean, yeah, you're just right. starting your life. You're just you know, really getting involved in your life in in such an amazing way. So that that could be horrible. So I have to ask a question. Are you actually playing piano? It took six years to rehabilitate myself. I actually had to have that invasive surgery and very invasive full body radiation for 33 straight treatments, um, which were you know, many people will nod their heads at this. The radiation was more debilitating than the tumor and the surgery. Right. So, yeah. So I <coughs> we we get that. <laughs> yeah, I I got I didn't get to go back to school, um, and I had to cancel my grad school plans, which was oh bummer. You know, at that age, monumentally devastating because that was all I knew in life was just to play piano and write for Hollywood and film. So, right. Wow. Um, so how did you get through that that kind of emotional roller coaster that you must have been going through? Well, I mean, we all forgive the '90s for just being a horrible decade in general. <laughs> so I'm I'm not holding it accountable for there being no. I mean, if we're all in the 20 year club, we remember the '90s. There was no real attention ever paid to you as a person or what's important to you. They just wanted to cure you and kick you out. Right. So. The answer to your question is that I had no support. My, beyond my, my parents and my friends, and you know, there was nothing out there. You know, even today, people are like, well, you were a pianist, and they didn't give you occupational or physical therapy? I said, no, that didn't exist 21 no, years ago. Uh-uh. Yeah, yeah and we, we kind of get that, because when Sharon went through, Sharon was the first one in our circle to go through cancer, and you know, they're just, even for breast cancer, which is pretty common, you know, in the big scheme of things, there just weren't a lot of support programs available back then. And, you know, none of us really knew how to support her or how to help her. You know, I've gone through cancer three times, but she had to go through it first. And going through it first is tough when no one knows really what you're dealing with. So so we understand that's kind of why we started Breast Friends is because we wanted to be able to create that support system, that support network for people going through that. So in your case for young and, 
you know, this really odd tumor in a strange place. I mean, it's just, that had to be really devastating for you. I, I just, yeah, it was. I don't often like to play the victim, but it was a horrible time to be in your early 20s when you're not sick. Yeah. But mm-hmm. when you are sick, you throw all that in there. And, yeah. you know, my career was gone. Uh, you know, I, I couldn't date anyone. I was I- impotent for a year because of the radiation. I was infertile. Um, uh. I lost all of my hair. I mean, I know that for guys, different, and clearly there's a lot more emotion when women lose their hair. I but lost still, a lot of, you know, I know a lot, of, a lot of men who are very attached to their head or hair <laughs> and really covet it when they yeah. look back at their pictures at 18. <laughs> wow, I used to and have they don't hair. have it anymore. <laughs> oh, I hear you. I hear you. <laughs> so I have a question for you that, that I it's not on my list of things to ask you, but I'm going to ask you anyway. Um, so going through all of that trauma at, at such a young age, what, if you could say one thing that gave you hope, what was that one thing? That one day I might be able to play piano again. Okay. Really? Wow. And, and it took you a long time to work back toward that, but it sounds like I'm so yeah. thankful that you did. Yeah. It took so, me a very too. long time, yeah. Yeah. So There's when did you become important. an advocate? I didn't realize that that was even a thing that existed because I was, <laughs> you know, I, I won't say so busy trying to figure out my life. But it took me seven full years to meet another human being who had cancer in their 20s. And it was only until meeting this guy, Craig, out of pure happenstance, that I realized, oh my God, I'm not alone. And I'm not alone is not an uncommon thing to say, but it's very kind of a niche market when you're diagnosed in college. So meeting Craig, he was the first person that I felt really understood what I went through, not to throw my parents or my family and friends under the bus, but it really is different when you meet someone who's been there. And he's the first person that explained to me what, like, cancer advocacy was. Mm. Okay. So for our audience, why don't you tell us what cancer advocacy is to you? Right. For me, it means trying to make it suck less for someone else. <laughs> I love it. That's okay. simple. Yeah, it's I guess, very I guess we do that. You do that too. <laughs> yes, you definitely make it suck less for other people. Oh my I gosh, mean, it means that different is... things. You know, it could be policy. Yeah. It could be nonprofit world. It could be you know, um, um, education. It could be what. But for me, I go back to that running joke where no one should get robotizing for cancer. If I can prevent that from happening, I'm an advocate. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. Absolutely. Exactly. Well, well I know I know it's interesting because from a breast friend's perspective, um, when you met this this other young man who could kind of talk your language, who really understood what you were going through as a young person going through cancer, that's some of the things that we talk a lot about at Breast Friends because, again, it seems, and of course we work more with women than men, but at the same time, I think it's a general way of the world is we minimize what we're going through for everyone, especially really close to us because we don't want them to suffer. But the reality is you really need someone that relates that really understands what you're going through and can speak that same language so i bet that was amazing when you finally did meet your friend was it chris you said 
No, oh well, Craig. But Craig, it, sorry. It, he's been called much worse, I'm sure. Don't worry about that. <laughs> <clears throat> but it, sorry, it's Craig. It's, it's, it's a, it was, I mean, I go back. I remember the day, and it was it's such a seminal aha moment when you understand that there's someone else who, who you know, gets it. And, and, again, not a new concept, but for me it was at the time. Um, I lost my grandfather to cancer. I lost my older aunt to cancer. You know, I mean, it, all these, you know, uh, we, it affects all of us in some way, but no one in their 20s that I had met that had beat it and had that, that, that gumption to be willing to take me on as like a disciple and explain to me how he was making a difference for some other people and what role I might want to play one day in that space. Yeah, you know, and Sharon and I both, I mean, being 20, I can't even imagine, but Sharon, I mean, Sharon and I were both, she was 40 when she was diagnosed, and even 40, you know, for a breast cancer diagnosis at that point in time, before we got to know a lot of other women who were in their 40s, that seemed so young, and you know, you don't you don't think about there just aren't that many people you can relate to. And so as I was saying with Sharon being first, she didn't have those people in her life to kind of reach out to that could help her because everybody she knew that had ever had breast cancer pretty much had died. And, and died. Yeah. They were yeah. way older and they yeah. had died. So yeah. yeah, that that was what uh, how I related to cancer. Yeah. So And then when I was diagnosed three years later, now, I, I had a definite benefit in that because she'd already been down that road. So she had a sense. So she became kind of my Craig, I guess. You know, she was that person that, that just reached out to me and, and was able to share with me. And so even though we were friends prior to that, I, I didn't have that understanding of what she really needed because I, I didn't know anybody. And um, so, you know, it's important to make that connection with somebody. And right. I don't think we always think about how important important that is to have that person you can connect to and talk with and who can share that that journey with you so no i agree it's invaluable so i understand you're the you're the ceo and founder of stupid cancer so tell us a little bit about that and how it got started well i'm probably the least likely human to ever start a charity and it was (laughs) not even even in the remotest sites Uh, instead of going to grad school i wound up landing a, a new career in advertising and marketing in the agency world. So I spent 10 years rebuilding my life as a musician, but also finding a home and making a living and building a career in the antithetical space that I started at, completely unexpected. Um, But it wasn't until I met Craig that he introduced me to this world of advocacy. And so what happened was in 2006, a lot of people asked the question, well, why do you only focus on young adults? And that was for me the catalyst to start a charity. In <clears throat> 2006, the National Cancer Institute published a public health report, a 30-year study on what, what we call outcomes, uh, who lives, who dies, how poorly do they function, specifically for Generation X and patients diagnosed between the age range of 15 and 39. That's what the NCI designated. And, and I read the report, and it basically said that survival rates and quality of life for young adults across 30 years had been stagnated and that the death has increased, um, quality of life has decreased, incidence has increased, and it is the most underserved population by age in all of oncology. So wow. when And that hasn't changed. It's 10 years since that report. It's still the same. 
So when I read that report in 2006, I said, well, I can probably, you know, this, this, this resonates with me personally because I, I was 21, and it mm-hmm. meant to me that here we are 10 years later, the next 21-year-old is going to go through the same thing, the same right. fear and isolation and anxiety and stress and infertility and optics and whatnot. So that's what prompted me to start Stupid Cancer as a nonprofit organization. And then to, fo- to focus on the young adult cancer. That, you know, Matthew, that's, that's really impressive that you took what, what you needed so much and turned it into something to help others. And, you know, that's one of the things that we kind of are, I guess we're sort of proud of our organization because we kind of did the same thing. You know, we took our journey and converted it. Let me ask you a question. We have about a minute till we go out to break. So if we don't complete this conversation, we'll pick it up on the other side. But just a quick question. Talk to us about the term millennial health. You know, well, I, yeah. so I we're think we touched on it. But... Our diagnosis, I'm an old man now at 42 because I was 21 oh, and now my mission goes to 40. <laughs> so I've aged yeah, out of my charity. <laughs> and now we're focused on the next generation facing the same issues, and which is the millennial market of 18 to 35. You know, what interests me the most about that is how do we behave differently with cancer than millennials who don't? And that's right. the framework for how we operate today programmatically. Wow. Okay. Mm-hmm. Cool. Well, we are going to take a short break. So we just invite you, if you'd like to give us a call and talk to Matthew, he's a pretty awesome guy. His picture is on our, is on our Facebook page. So it's pretty pretty cute picture there, Matthew, with your hat. <laughs> I love that. Um, but we do need to take a short break, so stay with us. We'll be back in a minute. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health & Wellness. Thank you for listening today. Breast Friends needs your support. We rely on donations to keep our doors open and to keep this radio program alive. Please consider making a tax-deductible donation to Breast Friends. You can visit us at breastfriends.org. You can also like us on Facebook at Breast Friends of Oregon. Be sure to tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel every Friday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time for Breast Friends Cancer Support Radio. Visit breastfriends.org and contribute today. When was the last time you felt free? It's time to uncover that feeling again with the compassion of a cross and shield and the power of a card that opens doors to the best hospitals and medical centers in all 50 states. Giving you the freedom to love, to dream, to dance like no one is watching. Regions Blue Cross Blue Shield. Live fearless. Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health and Wellness. You are tuned into Breast Friends Cancer Support Radio. To reach the program today, please call us at 1 866 472 5792. Again, that's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Becky at breastfriends.org. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to our program. We've been talking about cancer in young adults with the founder and CEO of Stupid Cancer, Matthew Zachary. So let's kind of pick up where we were 
talking about last segment. Um, tell us, uh, and, and you started talking about why young adult cancer. So let's let's just talk a little more about that. Yeah, we we get that a lot. I think it's probably the strongest conversation we have with other patient groups and and nonprofit partners. Why just young adults? Why do we cut it off, Soylent Green style, at 40 years old? It's based on the NCI patient population data, and no one is ever suggesting that pediatric cancer, you know, boomer cancer, senior cancer, is any better or worse. It's not a competition. It's focusing on what makes cancer in your teens, 20s, and 30s different. And okay. what, what helps frame that most eloquently is the issue of fertility, where when you're diagnosed as a child or over the age of 55, traditionally fertility is not an issue you're concerned about because you either have kids already or your family's done, that's it. But the chemotherapy, radiation, surgery, immunotherapies that can happen when you're diagnosed in this fertile age range can affect your ability to bear children, produce sperm, carry a child. And mm-hmm. so that's a massive pillar of why we sub-segment by age and how we make what we do as a cause relevant to that specific difference. Yeah. Well, and that makes complete sense. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Super I was emotional. Speak- absolutely. Yeah. I was talking at, to a beautiful young 26-year-old who was diagnosed with breast cancer just yesterday, and we were having this exact conversation with her because 26 years old, you know, she'd heard the term menopause, <laughs> but, you That's know, for other people, you know. <laughs> well, that's certainly for your mom or your grandmother, yeah. not for a 26-year-old. And all of a sudden, going through chemotherapy, boom, she's in menopause, at least temporarily. Now, hopefully, in her case, she'll be able to get um, her cycle back and she'll be able to have children down the road a bit, but... You know, she was probably at that place in her life where she's youngly, she's married. She was looking forward to having a family. So this is a huge, huge issue. So let's talk about how you handle that, Matthew. Well, the program focus, the mission of Super Cancer has never changed. This is our 10-year anniversary, 2017. The mission is to build community end isolation, improve quality of life, and provide what we call meaningful survivorship. So it's not about cure. It's about how, how well you live with the time you're given, whether that's mm-hmm. an hour, a week, a month, or 35 years. Mm-hmm. And how that has manifested programmatically has been largely educational through content marketing, storytelling, events, and digital, social. Right, we have a podcast. And we have lots of community meetups that happen outside the, the sort of the traditional support groups that happen at cancer centers. Um, we also do- dovetail into some policy work. We're getting into what the industry calls value space, so helping pharmaceutical companies interface with patients more effectively to improve access to drugs. Mm-hmm. And we're now into the research of if For example, if a young woman is diagnosed with cancer and she is made aware of her fertility preservation opportunities, does she have less stress and anxiety knowing that one day she'll be a mom versus the young woman who isn't made aware of that and wakes up barren the next day? That's really important important research for us. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that is one of the things that's changed, like even in the world of breast cancer, like Sharon was talking about that young woman, you know, now that, you know, they kind of become more aware of the importance of all these, you know, these psychosocial impacts and things that now women are given that opportunity to have their eggs frozen. And in the case of a young adult male who has cancer of some sort, the opportunity to have his sperm frozen so that they can become parents later. And, you know, where there was a point where that was never even discussed so never never discussed but in in this case she didn't really even have that conversation so it's it's not even even in 2017 it is not necessarily a conversation that all doctors are feeling comfortable with even today which is i'm guessing you i'm guessing you had that conversation with her though right oh i absolutely (laughs) did but at the same time she's already started chemo so it's not like that is a possibility and with an estrogen positive tumor in breast cancer you know adding more estrogen so you can harvest your eggs may not either be a an option for people so so again it's education like Matthew has said is is power and and at least you have the knowledge to be able to ask the questions sometimes you don't even know what questions to ask that's true well, that's, that's the biggest issue, too, is we just finished an IRB-approved research study of 800 young women who had been diagnosed with cancer in their fertile years. Between 18 and 34 was the window that they approved with the academic partner. And we concluded, and this has been peer-reviewed and published in the journals, 87% of those women did not feel informed about the risk of their treatment causing infertility. Exactly. Wow, that's so many. 87, wow. And that was just done recently, huh? This was done in August. Yeah, see, that that doesn't really surprise me. I mean, again, to your point about medical care and everything, yes, it's the doctor's uh, job to cure us, to heal us, to, to get us past the cancer. Unfortunately, it's the treatments that can leave many, many scars emotionally, physically, mm-hmm. and yeah, so yeah, for a long time. Yep, mm-hmm. that's exactly right. So um, so the main focus of stupid cancer, I'm not sure, did we just cover that? And I well, had it, a brain again, cramp. Well, ending isolation. We want to make, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, our, our value point is to ensure that no one goes unaware of what they're entitled to know about to help them mm-hmm. get busy living. So, which is the issue of access? How can you be made aware? Like, I should have been told Craig existed the day I was diagnosed. I shouldn't have had to wait seven years to meet my Craig. That is a great metaphor for what we try to solve as an issue. So no one says, well, if only I knew you existed when I was diagnosed, my life would have been so much better. How many right. times have we heard that, Sharon? <laughs> oh, that, that's you actually know? something that is said about breast friends all the time. Number yep. one, I didn't know I needed you, and I wish I'd found you sooner. Yeah, exactly. So I, yep. I, I get that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we really do. Listen, I'm, I'm going to switch gears for just a moment, okay? Because, you know, today was kind of a historic day in the United States. Today we changed presidents that could because today is January 20th, and people listening to this down the road aren't going to, make this connection, but today we had a new president sworn in, and the new president has vowed to remove and replace the Affordable Care Act. And Matthew, I know on your website, you know, you do spend some 
some time there talking about, you know, the importance of healthcare and making it accessible. And what do you, I mean, without trying to get, we don't want to get too political here and alienate anybody because that's not what this is about. But how do you, do you see anything changing in positive or negative ways with, with this change in our health care act well, that yeah, may or may not happen? Yeah, I mean, bipartisanship is the, the, the narrow road that we have to, you know, tow as nonprofits because, yes, to your point, we don't want to alienate our base. But the, the common ground around insurance is that the burden is usually equally shared. We have data from a partner called Triage Cancer that two-thirds of all bankruptcies are medical and two-thirds of all medical bankruptcies are young adults. And mm-hmm. that's because of the high cost of care. They're crunching data now to update that from four years ago with the Affordable Care Act because there's now 11 million young adults who have insurance above the age of 26 or below the age of 26 to their parents. We don't quite yet know the impact that having that coverage because of mandates and pre-existing condition has trickled up to outcomes. But again, the apolitical bipartisan component of this is that pre-existing condition can jeopardize your ability to get affordable care or care yeah. at all for insurers. Yep. So yep. the one thing that I know the, the incoming administration has been very vocal about is that preserving pre-existing condition and coverage up to 26 were two of the more popular things that I mean, no one has ever claimed that the Affordable Care Act was perfect. It's a work in progress. It's a living, breathing yeah. policy. So if, if we're hopefully able to continue the mandate around if you have had cancer, there's 17 million cancer survivors, let alone other diseases with comorbidities that give you predisposition for preexisting discrimination. So there's millions of Americans who depend on that clause just to have basic coverage. And yeah. I don't think it's a Democrat or Republican issue. It's a civil liberties issue to access affordable care because you didn't ask to have cancer. Right. right, right, right. You know, right. And, and you're kind of, you're kind of wake, awakening a, a memory in me. When I left my corporate job, and, you know, my company pay, had really great health insurance, paid for me, my husband, my kid, whatever. I mean, we were all covered under that health insurance plan. And I went through cancer twice under that health insurance plan. And then when I left my job, my biggest concern at that point was how am I going to get insurance because pre-existing conditions that was they didn't even consider that at that point in time and i was so thankful when my husband actually got a job 3 months later we maintained cobra because they said if i let the insurance policy lapse i would not be covered for cancer if it came back again because i you know i there was a lapse and so we kept it going for for 5 months and then i was able to roll onto his plan and the thing that was really scary there is we had he had the same insurance company on his new plan that I that we left when I left my job, but because we changed from my company's plan to his company's plan, there was a little break there. I mean, it was like a minute, <laughs> but but because right. of the break in that, they tried. Not that they tried. I think there was just a big goof up, but but they almost didn't accept my my insurance and you know they almost tried to exclude cancer and I mean I remember going through those heart palpitations and losing sleep and thinking oh my god no this can't be and we we didn't have to fight it hard they just had to fix the mistake but I remember the angst that that caused me and kept me for a long time in a job I really was starting to hate because I was afraid of that one thing and so it, it can't go away I don't care who you are or what side of the aisle you're voting on we need that to stay because there is 
just so much around that. And, and Matthew, I want you to repeat a statistic that you said, because I tried to write it down, and I don't write that fast. You said two-thirds of all bankruptcies are medical, and then two-thirds of all something are young people. What did you right. say? Would you so there's a non-profit called Triage Cancer. I want to give a source, so I'm not making not fake news here. Triagecancer.org. <laughs> they have statistics that suggest that two-thirds of all bankruptcies are medical-based, and two-thirds mm-hmm. of all medical bankruptcies are people under the age of 40. Oh, yeah, wow. Because you okay. don't have the means to deal with that, and you don't have yeah. insurance to back up your insurance or yeah. whatever. Um, yeah. I, I do want to make a point, though, that uh, before I was married, I was in your boat. I, was, I, had, I didn't have gap insurance, and I was paying $1,800 a month for a private policy. Yeah. Um, once I got married, I was on my wife's policy, and she's got like a gold standard here with the New York City Board of Education. But I got lucky in that sense. If I were to try to get a policy now, um, I would be able to get one, but it wouldn't be near the benefits that I had paying that much money, but, you know, if they do anything to this mandate, I would never be insurable at all. I I also want to point out on social media to all of your listeners out there and to yourself, there's a wonderful hashtag, it's a bipartisan hashtag trending called uninsurables, and it's beyond cancer. Anyone that has pre-existing condition is tweeting about how that I'm I'm part of the uninsurables, you know, and Mm. we, we deserve the dignity of access, not because we didn't ask to be sick. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Well, and also I, I was thinking too, as you were talking about young people having cancer, um, isn't there some sort of statistic that, you know, if you have childhood cancer or a young, young person's cancer, I don't know how young adult cancer, that you have a more prevalent risk factor later in life to also have cancer, right? Isn't there something about that? Yeah, there, there's, you know, we affectionately call that the gift that keeps on giving. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Right. One that that's we don't want, but yeah. <laughs> when, when, when the doctor says you're cured, go home, and that's not the end of the story. When you have 60 years of life left, you, you are at a higher predisposition for recurrence or relapse than if you get it at, at an older age because you have less life to live. So the the risks are significantly higher. There's all these massive studies now coming out around pediatric cancer because a lot of the kids that were treated in the 80s and 90s are now part of stupid cancer as long-term survivors in their 30s and 40s, and they're relapsing and having all sorts of cardiomyopathy and diabetes and infertility and cognitive deficits. Mm -hmm. Consequences of cure make you at risk for not being insurable either. Yeah, that makes wow. sense. Yeah. So, Matthew, so, you, you talked a little bit about your research, you know, and it sounds like because you were able to share some really great statistics with us that you kind of figured through all that. Is there an, any other components to the research that you work on through Stupid Cancer? Yes, there are a lot of young adult clinics out there that are struggling to figure out how best to serve their young adult patient population. So we worked with a few academic centers to create a survey that is uh, what they, in the psychosocial space, which is measuring emotions and lifestyle versus treatment and issues and concerns. And we have an annual convention called CancerCon, uh, which is now in its 20th uh, iteration. CancerCon 2017 is our 20th conference over the last 10 years. We conducted a study two years in a row over CancerCon, whether it's simply by attending the conference meeting peers and getting educated improves your life on certain academic points. 
and we quantified it does. So exporting that research model to clinics like Cincinnati Children's or the Sylvester in Miami or Seattle Children's, that's where our research is headed to help academic centers and major hospitals and even community cancer centers get a better understanding as to how they can improve the quality of life of the young adults that diagnosed and treated there. Wonderful. That is that is so encouraging that, you know, somebody's really paying attention to all of that. So what specific challenges are you trying to solve in all of this? It, so the three pillars of stupid cancer revolve around something that's universal, access, navigation, and dignity. Dignity mm-hmm. really, for me, is a word that isn't often associated with cancer and cancer survival, because we talk about, you know, survivorship and quality of life. But it comes down to your rights. You know, you have the right to be a parent one day. You have the right to not go broke because you didn't ask to get sick. And you have the right to navigate through your decisions with the dignity you deserve on your terms. So the, the challenge that we're trying to solve is what does that really mean to this community out there when you take two women at the same age with the same cancer you have two completely different life experiences. So one might have a kid, one might not. One might be married, one might not. One might have insurance, one might not. So the, the diagnosis itself is irrelevant to the person. And that's the biggest challenge is how do we identify the person's experience through that to improve their quality of life? Wow. Impressive. Well, we we have to go out to break, so there may be more to talk about on this on the other side, or maybe not, but we'll, we'll be back here in just a minute, so please stay tuned and don't go away. Step into a healthier you. Voice America Health and Wellness. Thank you for listening today. Breast Friends needs your support. We rely on donations to keep our doors open and to keep this radio program alive. Please consider making a tax-deductible donation to Breast Friends. You can visit us at breastfriends.org. You can also like us on Facebook at Breast Friends of Oregon. Be sure to tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel every Friday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time for Breast Friends Cancer Support Radio. Visit breastfriends.org and contribute today. time you felt free. It's time to uncover that feeling again with the compassion of a cross and shield and the power of a car that opens doors to the best hospitals and medical centers in all 50 states. Giving you the freedom to love, to dream, to dance like no one is watching. Regions Blue Cross Blue Shield. Live fearless. Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health and Wellness. You are tuned into Breast Friends Cancer Support Radio. To reach the program today, please call us at 1 866 472 5792. Again, that's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Becky at breastfriends.org. Now, back to the show. Okay, 
Hey, thanks for coming back. We are talking with Matthew Zachary from Stupid Cancer. And Matthew, you were just talking about some of the challenges you're trying to solve. Access, navigation, and dignity. And I'd really love for you to just give us another little bit of information about that because that was just so intriguing to me. Well, a, a really good euphemism for that is, is how often when you're newly diagnosed does the doctor ask the patient what's the most important thing to you right now before we talk about treatment? That mm. conversation doesn't really happen and I'm not throwing doctors under the bus. It's a matter of we want to save your life and here's the data to get you the drugs you need. But mm-hmm. if you were to ask that question of a, a woman who's young what's most important to them might be I don't want to lose my hair or it might be, I want to have a kid one day. Or I want to, you know, I want my boyfriend to feel like I'm, I can still perform and, and be his partner. Those are the things that could be asked. So access is not about getting the right drug. It's about being able to live your life the way you want to by having access to the resources that make that happen. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I got I to share, share a quick story here. I'm sorry. I'm just going to do it. <laughs> Oh, I was going to say it too. You've yeah. fired your doctor. <laughs> well, I'm going to I'm going to use the term a little more gently than that. Okay. But but yeah, kind of. Um, I was <laughs> on my second diagnosis. I had my first doctor retired past me to her one of her colleagues, and for the next six years, her colleague took pretty good care of me until she had to diagnose me again. And when the time came for her to diagnose me. Um, she sat across the room in her little chair, her little wheelie chair, and she wasn't even looking at me. She was giving me all these statistics, and, and she didn't realize I was crying. And I wasn't crying because I had cancer again. I kind of knew that, and I'd already processed that. I was crying because I had been asked to speak at a Komen Survivor Luncheon, and that was my biggest thing. That's what, what I lived for, was to be able to get up in front of a large audience and share my story. And the theme of that event was thriving after cancer. And I was afraid that I would be knee-deep in treatment, I'd be too sick or weak to go and do this, and I didn't want them to find out and then not even let me go. So I was crying because I'm trying to figure out, oh, my God, how am I going to work all this around me? She didn't even know I was crying. My husband had to go pick up a box of Kleenex from in front of her and bring it to me. And when she finally looked up to see why he did that, she saw I was crying. And I said, I said, you know, I just want you to know we have to work backwards. I need my treatment to be completely done before, you know, with like three weeks on the other side of this thing so I can be good to go on stage. And she said, and I'll never forget this, she goes, I don't even know why you're thinking about that. That should be the last thing on your mind. Mm. And I thought, oh, you have no idea. So that was it. I actually just found a doctor that was closer and could actually relate to what my needs were. And, And he said, I'll have you feeling as good as possible if I have to pump you full of vitamins myself. And that's what I needed. Because for her to tell me that I shouldn't even be thinking about speaking, my gosh, that is... That's what I where I twinkle, you know. And we all have the things that like you for you and piano. For me it's being on a stage and sharing my story with people and making a difference, you know, and and it just blew me away and so I she was a nice lady, very knowledgeable, but missed that one, you know, yeah. completely. I, and, I have a thirty second allegory to that specifically around okay. the piano. So I finished radiation, and then the doctors wanted to give me chemotherapy, which would have been un- unnecessary but more palliative to help their their data. 
And I found out that one of the drugs they wanted to give me was called Vincristin, which causes peripheral neuropathy in your fingers and toes. And if I had any chance of playing piano again in my life, I didn't want to have this chemotherapy drug because it would have impeded my ability to rehabilitate on the piano. Uh-huh. So I, yeah. I, I basically said to them, I'd rather die, because they gave me 50% chance to live for five years. I'd rather die in five years without Vincristin if it means I get to play piano again than die in five years with Vincristin and not be able to play. And they yeah. were Deadpan response was, but we're trying to save your life. Uh, mm, yeah, life is just so much more than just breathing air. You right. know? Exactly. Exactly. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, so we're, we're all on the same page here. Yes, exactly. So. Definitely, definitely. Yeah. So, so what is most important to you personally? I, I think the greatest blessing of my life is on, I'm living here and, and breathing today. Uh, I married an incredible woman who actually lost her younger brother to cancer when he was 19. Oh, wow. So we have a strange Match.com thing happening that we're still together, <laughs> you know, after 11 years. Um, but we have beautiful, I have a beautiful uh, twins. They're six and a half years old, a boy and a girl. But because I'm infertile, we had to do in vitro. Um, I was joking, we were joking um, during the break that, you know, my wife and I went to Disney World by ourselves without children the year before we did the IVF knowing we'd never go back again the same, having, having had kids there. But, you know, the greatest blessing of my life is having these extraordinary little things running around my house asking wonderful questions. But what's most important to me is that they get to live an incredible life. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's, that's amazing. That's, that's yep. so great. So launching a charity, and we know this, uh, can be very <laughs> uh, challenging. So what would you say your biggest challenges have been for launching this charity? Oh, up until uh, us, the term young adult cancer didn't really exist in the vernacular. And from a cultural perspective, most Americans associate research and cure with pediatric cancer and breast cancer, rightfully so, Mm -hmm. because it's had this this incredible exposure, that being able to penetrate the the mindset of Main Street Street America, that young adult cancer is a thing too, the fact that it wasn't about a specific body part, but that it was about a specific age group that wasn't a child, has been one Mm -hmm. of the strongest challenges for us to make a case for. So 10 years later, now young adult cancer is research. There are insurance codes for it, there's billables for it, there's standards of care, there's best practices, there's guidelines. So the infrastructure now exists where people understand that young adult cancer is like the third segment. It used to be kids and everyone else, but now it's kids, young adults, and then 40 and over. And mm-hmm. to me, that's been the, the, great, the great achievement overcoming that huge challenge. Yeah, yeah, and you know, imagine. and it's it's kind of an interesting thing. You almost get put in sort of I don't want, I don't know if catch twenty two is the right phrase, but you know, until you can establish the need, you know, it's hard to get funding because right. no one understands the need. And then once you can prove the need, then everybody else jumps into the arena with you, and now you're competing. Now you end up competing because now you've got you know twelve people. 12 organizations, 20 organizations all competing. Now they're all playing in the same sandbox. And then that becomes a challenge, you know, and that's really happened a lot in the breast cancer arena because where we first started our organization, the the idea of trying to teach the friends and family how to support a loved one through this journey, people didn't really understand why that was important unless you're the patient who 
isn't getting the support or you're the friend or family who doesn't know what to do to help. So you get it, but the rest of the world doesn't get it. And so it's hard to get funding for your cause. And, you know, every organization needs funding, right? Right. Mm. But but then as we kind of go along and then more organizations are figuring it out that there's a need for this and there's more support, now they all need funding and this guy needs funding and everybody <laughs> needs funding. So, you know, it goes from one extreme to the other extreme. And it's it's kind of an interesting thing. Have you experienced that? Or are there a lot of other groups focused yet on young young uh, young adult cancer well the interesting turning point in all the molecular genomic medicine that's coming out is that it is age agnostic um, and they're looking for uh, patient populations of all ages that are interested in you know taking their drugs or getting on their clinical trials so uh, the young adult community has become very popular recently with the pharma companies who need mm-hmm. you know the ALL and the AML and and, and the, the the CML and some of the colon cancer and the um, the thyroid cancer and even young breast cancer um, and that's just because of technology and the way that things have worked but yeah pharma industry insurers um, uh, corporations you know we also have you know millions of millennials, whether they've been affected by cancer or not, who love our brand and love our community because we are their age and we speak that, right. that millennial language. Um, I hate to like paint with a big brush, but that's a sense we become a market of consumers. Yeah. Like that millennial health phrase is our market. Yeah. So companies like Walgreens and Aflac and General Motors and Spencers, you know, they really flock to us because they believe that, you know, we are their market and they are our market. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and you came up with a great name for your organization, too. You know, it's just such a great play on words, stupid cancer, because it certainly is a description of cancer. But, <laughs> <Thank> you. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so right, you were very right. clever in coming up with that one. So, um, yeah. So, so where Sharon, do you... Yeah, yeah I, I, was, I was just going to say, where do you see stupid cancer in the next 10 years? And maybe you could talk about some of your accomplishments that you've, you know, had, and then we'll probably have to start wrapping up. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm most proud of our conferences. So we've had 20 conferences in the last 10 years. You know, they've been day conferences or three-and-a-half-day conferences, and they've all evolved into this program I mentioned earlier called CancerCon, which is online, you can have a cancercon.org, which is the largest young adult patient congress in the world. Happens once a year in Denver at the end of April, and it welcomes 700 people for four wow. days. And wow. it's it, an it experience unto itself, and, and it, 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 you just kind of have to be there to get what it is, mm-hmm. the energy and the fierceness and, and the photography and the video and the stories. It's amazing. I think the next 10 years for us are really going to be defined by our new app that's coming out at CancerCon. We're launching it at CancerCon at the end of April, and it's, it's just Stupid Cancer's app. It's going to do one thing very, very well, and that is to match you one-to-one with a peer like you anonymously. So it's an augment to a lot of the phone call, telephone-based peer-matching platforms where you have to speak to somebody tell them who you are, and they pull up somebody in the database and recommend you email each other, this does it for you autonomically on your app based on what it is that you want to talk about with whom, at any age, any cancer, anywhere, and including caregivers. Mm-hmm. That's wonderful. Well, good. Well, you know what? We are kind of down to the wire here. So do you have, 
I'm going to give you I'm going to give you 30 seconds, Matthew, to wrap up your end of it. If you have one thing you want to leave people with in a nutshell, what would it be? When I was really believing I was dying in my bedroom at 21 years old, I wrote a mantra for myself, and I, I still remember it. And it's everything that happens to you, whether you like it or not, becomes a part of your life. And you must choose to live your life and be the best you can be every step of the way. Yeah, oh, that's mm, beautiful. That's mm-hmm. beautiful. Well, thank you so much, Matthew. You've been a wonderful guest today. I can't believe how fast some of these shows go. They just sort of rip on past. But, but you've been a great um, guest. So we thank you so much. How can people reach you if they want to you know, get in touch with Stupid Cancer? What's the web address? Uh, stupidcancer.org, and we're at Stupid Cancer on every social channel, and I'm at Matthew Zachary on every social channel. Okay, excellent. Well, I also want we want to take a second and just recognize that we have a lot of listeners across the pond. So a lot of our listeners are listening to us from from the UK. We want to thank you so much for tuning in or for downloading, however you're hearing about us. And we also want to invite you and anyone else who's listening to. Send us topics of interest to breastfriends.org, or you can go to our um, website, I mean, excuse me, to our Facebook page, Breast Friends of Oregon, and send us in- ideas for topics of interest, things you might uh, like to hear about, or have us, and if you know of a guest that we could have, or you yourself are an expert in the field, let us know, because we're trying to keep our shows as exciting and up-to-date as possible, so please do that. If you would rather just listen into our show, because you like what you're hearing, please think about making a donation. Uh, this show is done from, from our hearts, but it costs us money. Um, if you go to breastfriends.org, we are a nonprofit, a 501c3. There's a big blue button at the top of the page. So we encourage you to go to that big blue button and make a donation as big as you can so we can keep this show going. We figured it costs about $300 per episode to be on the air. And if you'd like to help toward that, we would really you know, appreciate that very much. So again, we are so thankful. Um, Sharon, I, I know we have another minute, um, but just real quick, we are, we are, as we mentioned, a nonprofit. We do have a great website, breastfriends.org. There's tips on there for friends and family, tips on there for the patient, a lot of great information on our website. So please take a look at it. And we are going to go now. <laughs> so just know that we will be back next week. And until then, remember, there is always hope. And we're here to help you find it. Thank you for listening to Breast Friends Cancer Support Radio. Please join Sharon Hannafin and Becky Olson again next Friday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. There is always hope and we'll help you find it. We'll talk again next time.